This is the Vincast, an Australian podcast that delves into the world of wine by chatting with different people who work in the wine industry in each episode and uh, finds out about their background, their philosophies and how they influence what they do in the world of wine. Now, as this is a completely free of charge podcast, I uh, would love for you to um, provide some support. Uh, and that can be in the form of sharing your experiences of the podcast on social media or telling a friend who loves wine to listen to the podcast or by going to the iTunes page for the Vincast, leaving a five-star rating and also a review because it provides really good feedback for potential listeners and also for potential guests. Uh, thank you for listening to this week's episode and I hope you enjoy. On episode 91 of the Vincast, I chat with Simon Colleen, a multi-generational winemaker from the Rutherglen region of Victoria, who is now carving out his own identity with his own wines under the Simao & Co brand. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, hope you enjoyed uh, last week's episode of the podcast. Of course, it's always great to have insight into how far the Australian wine industry has come, so it was great to chat with Neil Robb. Uh, and this week, I've changed things up a little bit uh, by having a, a young uh, winemaker uh, as my guest. But um, before I get into that, uh, I just wanted to let you know that um, I would love to hear from you. Uh, I would love uh, if you've got any questions that you might want to ask about me or about the podcast, about some of the guests uh, or about wine in general, uh, please do get in touch with me. Uh, you can do that via email. Uh, you can find me on thevincast at gmail.com or why not hit me up on uh, any form of social media you can find me on uh, or just send me a message on the intrepidwino.com website. So as mentioned, uh, I have Simon Colleen on this episode of the Vincast. Uh, Simon's uh, family background uh, is in the Rutherglen region, particularly famous for uh, fortified wines. Uh, but he has uh, started his own brand uh, and he's really um, trying to champion the northeast region of Victoria. So we chatted about his uh, his background, uh, his journey with winemaking and um, how he's championing that particular part of Australian wine. So hope you enjoy Enjoy. Uh, stick around to the end of the episode to find out how you can get in, in touch with Simon and myself. Um, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. Simon, thank you for uh, for coming down uh, from uh, where are you based? I'm not even sure. Ruther is it are you based in the Rutherglen? Yeah, based in Rutherglen. Uh, thanks for coming down from the Rutherglen to be on the Vincast and welcome. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, you may be aware I uh, typically start every episode of the podcast by asking my guests if they have a, a memory uh, or the, what their first memory of wine was that, that really sticks in there and, and, and might have kind of led them to following a career path? Uh, okay. I actually don't have an early memory. I know that I – it must have been very, very young that I've had something that's triggered off my interest, most likely the fact that my father was a winemaker and my grandfather was a winemaker. Yeah. But uh, I'd probably say that the earliest memory I would have would be – 
following the grape harvester and picking the grapes that the harvester missed and trying to throw them back in the bin. Not, then, not eating them? Not eating them. No, no, no. Uh, this is before school, before mum had to take me to school. Yeah. Um, and then it was probably going back to the winery and washing it, watching it all get crushed and going to the vat. Yeah. So you, so you had an interest when you were very, very young? Yeah, never had, never wanted to do anything else. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm one of those odd people who've known exactly what they've wanted to do from a very young age. Because I know it's, 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 you know, quite common for um, children of winemaking families, maybe, or, I mean, in probably in some cases, encouraged to go away and, and think really hard. Do you, do you absolutely want to, you know, follow, you know, the family business and, and working in wine and maybe they go and get a degree in, in something in, in, you know, marketing or business or something like that and then they go and work somewhere else and then they eventually come back. You knew, I was like, this is all I want to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I was still told by dad to go away mm. and work elsewhere. I, I was always asking him questions and he, he was adamant that, no, you're not coming home after school because mm. you'll stay here, mm. go away, learn learn stuff, earn your keep, mm-hmm. bugger up in someone else's winery before you come home. But, so but you it was have... going and working in the wine industry, not in a different industry altogether? No, he wanted me to decide uh, if I actually wanted to come home okay. or, and, or if I wanted to pursue something else. There was a brief moment that I flirted with the idea of being an architect or, a, or an engineer. Yeah. But uh, as soon as I finished school, I moved out of home immediately, got a job at a winery and absolutely loved what I was doing. Did you have an interest in, in sort of like technical stuff? Is that kind of why you had an interest in maybe doing architecture? Yeah, that probably stems from my love for Lego as oh, a yeah. kid. But i always uh, always been a very good drawer sure. and an artist. And so, and I dabbled in graffiti when I was in high school. So okay. I was really keen to be a graphic designer. Yeah. Um, I contemplated doing fine arts at uni mm-hmm. or graphic design more architecture, and then realised that I've got no hope of putting a portfolio together mm. and getting an enter score of 96. So I just threw that out the window mm. and said, let's just keep it as a hobby. But uh, no, very much very much an, uh, sort of an artistic-minded person. So were you working uh, like as a teenager when you were at school for the family business or were you working for you know other wineries as well? As a teenager, yeah. I would work most holidays uh, for... Grandpa, we'd we'd be doing sheep work together. We'd be doing irrigating together. Oh, cool. Uh, okay, so not I, just not just you know viticulture or, or winemaking, but, no, but the, other agricultural stuff. No, well. the farm's a thousand acres. Sure, and, and it's it's a mixed farm. So there's livestock. So there's sheep. We had veal as cattle uh, growing up, and we got rid of them. Uh, we also had crop, and then uh, we also had probably a hundred acres of vines, which grew. That number grew from about. 40 to 100 mm-hmm. in my growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Dad grew the business with Grandpa uh, and we also had the winery as well. So it was a nice little mixed agricultural uh, business. A lot of the wineries uh, around Rutherglen are like that. They're mixed farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it um, very common in the Rutherglen for um, producers to just grow all their own grapes or is it also common for, for, the, for growers to sell their grapes to the producers? A bit of both. A lot of the grower, a lot of the wineries have their own vineyards, yeah. and the majority of what they would crush would be what they grow themselves. Yeah. Uh, but then they also, the larger companies would also buy a fair bit, so uh, Pfeiffer's and Campbell's definitely. Dad bought a little bit, mm. but uh, from what I know, um, there's not much fruit being bought mm-hmm. there now. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike myself, who I buy a lot of grapes, there aren't many producers who would be buying most of their crush. Mm. 
So, um, Stand and Colleen was uh, was was the business. Was from, home, yes, yes. Um, and of being in the Rutherglen, uh, if, I mean, if you didn't know that the Rutherglen is possibly the most famous region for fortified wines in Australia, um, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but anyway. <laughs> um, but was was that the 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 majority of the business, or was there also uh, you know quite a lot of uh, table wine being produced? Growing up, Dad was always. Uh, about fifty-fifty, as in what we would, what would we? Sorry, what we would grow would be about seventy-five percent fortified varieties. Yeah, um, fortified. Yeah, fortified varieties, and then what we would sell would be fifty-fifty. Now that number has slowly changed to probably about fifty percent table wine, fifty percent um, fortified being grown, and then what has been sold is probably the majority. It's probably probably maintained the same fifty-fifty sales. So are you saying that 75% of the grape production would produce 50% of the volume of wine? Yeah, the volume of wine sold. Wine sold, okay. And you've got to remember that that is also, you've got to take into account, a lot of the wine would be barreled down. Sure. Um, and so not all of it would get released within the first year. Right, okay. So um, for those who are possibly not as familiar with fortified wines, particularly Australian fortified wines, um, because... You know, whilst in the past they were, you know, a lot of what was uh, consumed in Australia as far as wine, uh, but now not so much. Can you just give people an idea about what fortified wine is and particularly in the context of Rutherglen? Okay. So a fortified wine is essentially wine that has had alcohol added. Now, that alcohol can be uh, what we call brandy spirit, which mm. is not brandy. Brandy has to have at least two years in oak to be called brandy. It's the spirit that comes from the still. Um, that is of that style. Or it can be SVR, which stands for uh, Latin, which is a Spiritus Vini Rectificatus, mm. and that is just high-strength neutral grape spirit. Um, and you generally use that for muskets and tokays or topakes, mm -hmm. whereas the former you use for more port production. Okay. Um, now, the grapes are generally picked a lot riper than, say, Shiraz or Cabernet or any red or white table, table grape. Mm-hmm sorry, table wine. Um, and then there is a, a small sort of fermentation period mm. and then you would add the spirit uh, either to the fermentation or you'd press it off and then add it to the, the must, the juice, mm. I should mm. say. And that would, that would keep some sweetness, some sugar, mm -hmm. and replace the alcohol that you would get naturally from the yeast turning all that sugar into alcohol so mm -hmm. you would basically add the alcohol to keep some sweetness and that stops the fermentation that knocks it on the head when right. you're adding adding 96 percent alcohol the yeast pack up and say i don't want to be here yeah. i'm going to go home and yeah. the the fermentation ends up being after fortification ends up being about 17 18 percent alcohol okay and yeast are, aren't that resilient so if you add the spirit whilst the the skins are still in contact with with the fermentation mm -hmm. Uh, do, are they pressed off almost immediately? Generally, yes. Okay. Because if you add such a high percentage of alcohol uh, within the spirit, mm. that can also cause a greater extraction of the skins. Mm -hmm. So you can get a lot of color and you can also get a heightened extraction of phenolics and bitterness. And so it can be beneficial or it also can be detrimental mm. to the wine. Dep and it all comes down to personal preference and style for the winemaker. Okay. What are the grape varieties that are typically used for fortified wines? So... We used to have, I think the the law stipulated that you could make musket and tokay out of anything you wanted as long as they were of that style. You had to have a muskety aroma. Whereas today, it's 
the law says that musket has to be made out of muskets of Pettigrine Rouge, which mm. is uh, essentially little red grape musket. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Rutherglen, we call it Rutherglen brown musket. Uh, it's it's a, a special little red mutant of just the musket of Pettigrines, mm. whereas Tokay, muscadelle, is actually made out of the muscadelle grape variety, which is a Bordelais variety. Mm-hmm. It goes into Saturns. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas port, on the other hand, port can be a multitude of different varieties. Commonly in Australia, it's Shiraz, Grenache, Mataro, or Jurif. But there's a lot of producers using the traditional Portuguese varieties, Turiga Nacional, Tinta mm-hmm. Ruiz, mm-hmm. which is Tempraneo, Tinta Cow. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a newfound interest in, in using those varieties. And then you've got Sherry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherry's basically made out of Palomino, Cambi Trebbiano, Monbadon, Pedro Eximenez. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess Rutherglen probably has changed a lot and is focusing a lot more on, on dry table wines now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and is, is that something that you've been quite involved with and is there kind of a, a new energy around that, you know, particularly with, with the younger generations coming through of, you know, because Rutherglen is, is one of the oldest wine regions in Australia, particularly in terms of you know, un, unbroken family ownership of, of wineries. Um, is there kind of a, a bit of a, a – do you get together with uh, some of the other young generation producers? Of course. Uh, I've got a, a really good clique of friends, uh, not only in Rutherglen but the greater northeast area. Uh, we, we're all about the same age. We've either started our own wineries or we've taken over the reins at our family wineries. And it's a really fun time to be – working in the wine industry in northeast Victoria at the moment. I've got a couple of really good mates in Beechworth uh, who we catch up regularly. Um, actually, we catch up so regularly that we've got a little, I guess you could say, touring group, uh, which is sort of half trade, half footy trip, um, called the Thursday Table. And the name stems from the fact that we used to meet probably once a month on a Thursday night in Beechworth because the restaurant we used to catch up at had a BYO night on the Thursday. So we'd generally catch up, take a couple of really good bottles of wine and just rub shoulders and t- talk to each other about what we're up to and also just have a, a social catch-up. Mm. So uh, how did you kind of um, – you, did you go away and did you go and study winemaking or did you go and get winemaking experience in other places? Yeah, so I left school immediately – I finished school and started work immediately and I worked in – the Alpine Valleys, so for a company called Gapstead or Victorian Alpine Co. And that was my first vintage away from home when I was 18. And lo- I loved the vintage. They asked me to stay on. So I stayed there for about uh, 18 months. And then I came home and I worked for Pfeiffer's Wines briefly. Then I started university. I didn't go to uni straight out of school because I didn't think I was going to get in. I didn't think I was uh, – I wasn't – I'm a smart kid but I was – Oh, not a good student. Distracted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit of a brat. And so I didn't expect to get the enter score to get into uni. Anyway, I did. And I said, no, I've got this job. I'm going to get a bit of experience first. And so I did that for two years, went away to uni and did that for a couple of years uh, before the CSU. I went to Wagga mm. before the CSU course became a fully distance correspondence course. Oh, okay. And so I was the last year level of being an internal student. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to live in Wagga and try and get my course done um, by doing it by distance. I'll be bored. Mm. So I got, went and got a job in Western Australia. So I drove myself over there and worked for Voyager in Margaret River. Yep. 
And then I had a girlfriend at the time, which I ended up following my heart back to Griffith, where she was from. And I ended up working for Casellas. Mm-hmm. And I was in the cellar there and trainee winemaker there. And then I realized that I had to make the decision to stay there, uh, work for a big corporate company. And that, although that did excite me, uh, it also scared me that I'd lose a bit of freedom for the industry and I wasn't, wasn't going to go overseas. Mm. So I resigned and coincidentally the day after I resigned, I actually got offered a job in France. And so I took myself over there to work for Chapoutier mm-hmm. in the Rhone Valley, mm-hmm. which I love Shiraz. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why I went there. And then- and you're sort of, you're, you're racing through this. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you're sort of glossing over, like, this is a lot of experience in different wine regions. Yeah. Um, how did you find the Margaret River? Actually, no, let's go right back. Mm-hmm. Working at Gapstead would have been pretty interesting because you probably would have been exposed to a really huge range of different grape varieties. Was that was that quite interesting? That was one of the reasons why I love the Northeast so far, and it, it explained to me the diversity and the versatility that the Northeast Valleys have because yeah. I think we we played with something like 34 varieties, yeah, different yeah, yeah. varieties there, and batches from as small as half a tonne up to probably 50 tonne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was really good because I also got to see a really good array of growers mm. there. So, and that's also where I, I met the some of the growers that I have today for my right. label. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I got to see the better vineyards, so – that gave me the insight to be able to go on my own and say, right, I love your fruit. I want your fruit. Can mm. you please jump on board with me? What were some of the um, the quirkier varieties that you, you really enjoyed working with back then? Um, Saparabi was really interesting and uh, it was it was cool. Uh, Isabella, which is a hybrid variety, and but when it came in the cellar, it was just like bubble gum mm-hmm. um, sitting in the vat. Uh, Pettyman Singh, they were really championing Pettyman Singh at that yep. time and they were making some great wines out of it. Uh, and they also they were also kicking goals with Barbera and Sangiovese at the time, which now is a little bit more common in the Australian wine scene. Certainly Sangiovese. Very much so, yeah. Um, but at that, at that stage, people were still pretty – or consumers, I should say – were still pretty uh, unaware of them. Mm, so. And reluctant to try them. Mm, mm. But, uh, yeah, no, they, they were probably the, the more fun ones that I got to see. Yeah. Especially when you think that where's Petiman Singh from? It's from Durason, uh, Saparavi, it's a Georgian variety. Yeah. Uh, these things were, were really foreign to the greater industry at the yeah. time. Yeah. Well, I remember that, like um, stopping with my dad at Gapstead on the way up to Mount Hotham and, and sort of looking at this long list of all these varieties. And, you know, I was still pretty green at that point. And, and that was kind of when I – got introduced to Saparavi myself and kind of went, wow, what, you, Georgian, you say? Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, having now um, tasted more Georgian wine and I, I had, you know, John Verdeman from Pheasant's Tears as a guest, you know, kind of being able to say, well, actually, we, we have Saparavi in Australia and that kind of blew him away a little bit. Um, and and how was it? Uh, you drove across the Margaret River? Yeah, I did actually. I, um, I finished uni for the year and then uh, – I, what was I doing? I can't remember. Uh, packed myself up and I had a VZ Ute at the time. So typical young fella vehicle, V8, mm. and drove across uh, from Griffith through to South Australia, then across the Nullarbor. I had my swag in the back mm-hmm. and my my mountain bike as well <laughs> and uh, stopped along the way until I got to Margaret River and then started work there and Pretty much did five five months there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. I really liked it. 
Did you did you do a bunch of surfing whilst you were there? No, I can't surf to save myself. Uh, yeah, well, that makes two of us. Um, and then you came back and and worked. Uh, you know, a voyage is not small, but they're they're, they're pretty. I guess WA doesn't have a lot of really big wine companies. No. Um, to go from that to working for Casella, who, uh, for those who aren't aware, make probably Australia's one of Australia's most famous brands, particularly in the export market, Yellowtail. Um, and uh, I've never visited myself, but the words tank and the, or the word tank and the word farm tend to be uh, referenced as, as far as Casella. What was that like? Oh, amazing. Yeah. I, I'm very proud I work there because mm. there are a lot of people in the industry who are probably too proud to work for such a large company because yeah. they're and sl- and just just happily just slag it off exactly because they look at the idea of a mass-produced commodity yeah. with no love no yeah. no intention of quality it's just grapes come on trucks and we make Coca-Cola to come out the other side consistency yeah. regardless of the vintage yeah uh, I I actually liked being there because it didn't just teach me about consistency and also um, business and people management it also told me about uh logistics Mm -hmm. and told me how to it made me aware of how to run a winery efficiently Mm. Uh, and it also well i said people management before but uh it it really taught me how to run a well-oiled machine Mm. and have a good team because they collaborate yeah they had 300 cellar hands in the middle of vintage wow it was amazing all, all in the middle of nowhere, pretty much, which is Griffith. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I guess to a large extent, um, when you're working with, you know, big volumes um, and being able to learn how to manage that, when you go back to very small volumes, it's probably just, you know, makes it so much easier and go, oh, this this is wasn't too hard. I guess whether, I guess the difference being that you probably don't have 300 cellar hands, you know, working with your wines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it, it was good because you go to a, a smaller production size and you can take away elements of a large large volume winery such as like i said before um efficiency so Mm -hmm. you you try and work out what's the most efficient way because small wineries are quite labor intensive so you try and make the decisions of the easiest way to process your grapes um it could be as simple as i don't want my vat over there because it's a long way from the crusher or something simple like that um but it also it also teaches you to be i guess uh aware of loss loss mm-hmm. of you don't, if you if you drop a bucket of wine on the ground well that's you're losing a bit of income there mm-hmm. whereas in a big company you don't care about that but still you try and make sure that you're a clean worker mm-hmm. so you don't do that and so you can take away things like that into the smaller winery yeah absolutely and then um you ended up in France in uh, in the Rhone Valley um had you done any travel overseas before then no, not really. No, no. Okay. So that was my was that, that was my first independent trip overseas. Were you, were you anxious about going and working in a in a French winery? Did you? I'm, I'm assuming. Sorry, I, I don't mean to assume, but I assume you didn't speak much French. I taught myself French. Right so, before you went. Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. So I taught myself French, and I was not nervous. I was actually really excited because at that period, I was just. A sponge for knowledge about Shiraz, Shiraz yeah. production, yeah. Shiraz around the world, yeah. and I was eagerly awaiting my visit there. Mm. Um, I wanted to go and see the vineyards of Hermitage. I wanted to go and see Saint Joseph, Cornas, um, Cote Rotis, and and drink all those wines. I'd already 
bought a stack of it and mm. I loved all the styles and I was really inspired by it. So when I got there, I was really enjoying it. The only problem was my French wasn't as good as I thought I was. And so I actually locked myself in my bedroom for about four days and just wrote, learned French that I'd taught myself, but relearned it. Yeah. And then um, my sister rang me and she had already studied French at university and she was really excited for me and said, how are you going? I said, I haven't left my bedroom. And she goes, oh, you're such a goose. You've got to get lost to find yourself. Yeah. And so I went out there and started talking. And by the time That's I came- That's how you learn. Yeah, exactly. So when I came back to Australia, I was, I, well, to, and also now, I'm not fluent, but I'm, I've got very good conversational French. Proficient. Exactly. And you can probably, you probably understand a lot more just by listening because you've, you've heard it, you know, you've been surrounded by French people speaking French. And so you, you kind of, the context of being in that situation, um, where, where you see them say something and they, you know, point to something or they're holding something or the, the conversation is on that topic. You kind of go, Oh, yeah, I know what that means. I, I, I can hear that sentence. I can pick up the words and kind of know, Oh, this is what they're talking about. Um, how long did you end up spending there? About six months. Yeah, so it was pretty much just sort of one season. Yeah, a bit before vintage uh, and then a bit after vintage as well. Right, yeah. And you came back. And what were you doing when you came back? Uh, When I came back, I said, right, I'm ready to come home to Stan and Colleen. And I started working there and did that for a few years and then went to Portugal and uh, when was that, 2012, Mm -hmm. and went over there to the Douro Valley to learn production of course sure and that was my main goal i was always going to go overseas and it was always going to be portugal but other places like the rhone or burgundy happened for a bit of on the side for a bit of fun but for a bit of fun yeah well burgundy was a bit of fun <laughs> but like i'm never going to make pinot or chardonnay yeah yeah but, I, uh, I yeah i loved it it was good but portugal was great because that's I know a lot about Portugal. I know a lot about Portuguese wines and more more in particular Portuguese varietals. Sure. Uh, but also I know a fair bit about port because I was very fortunate to be surrounded by dad who was a port fiend. Mm. And I, yeah, just reading his books and whatnot uh, as a kid and also growing up helped me to be inspired. And plus drinking the wines that he made as well as mm. a winemaker also inspired me. So he, he, he liked to sort of put his wines or, or the wines of, of, of Rutherglen in context with, you know, some of the great port wines? It, of course. He benchmarked off a lot of the, the Portuguese styles yeah. Yeah. Uh, because that was the style that he liked to drink. Mm. The, in Australia, there's essentially two different port styles. There's the Australian style, which is generally quite rich and ripe and sweet, made out of Grenache and Shiraz or Mataro Cabernet or whatever. And then you have the drier, more elegant styles, uh, which are – can be made out of those same varieties, but people are starting to use those Portuguese varieties that I mentioned earlier on. Mm. And so they're, when I say drier, I mean they're finishing it at around about three and a half Bome, whereas the sweeter Australian styles can be four up to six and a half Bome. Yeah, so okay. very, very much another 100 grams of sugar yeah. per litre. For people who might be interested in um, trying some of the, the, as you say, the more elegant, and I probably would think maybe slightly more food-friendly styles of uh, of, of vintage uh, Australian port star wines, um, apart from Stanton and Colleen, have you, have you got some ones you would recommend for people who, who might want to try these kind of wines? Yes, yeah, Simao Co., my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, Pfeiffer Wines in Rutherglen mm-hmm. uh, are a great example. 
up there with the best of Australia easily. Mm. Gen Fife is probably one of the best winemakers I know and easily one of the best fortified winemakers. Uh, and she makes some stonking stuff. And they've got a lot of Tarrigo and a lot of Tintacao in their blends as well. Okay. Uh, 919 in the Riverland are also a really good uh, poor producer and also fortified producer. So, And they make a, a more elegant style as well. Uh, Morris's are getting drier mm. in their style mm. and they're, they're very nice, uh, but they're, they are a little bit sweeter, but still lovely all the same. Very good examples of the style. Uh, Chambers Rosewood in Rutherglen. Mm-hmm. Steve makes a very dry style and has a multitude of those varieties as well mm-hmm. and is doing really well. And then, uh, anyone else over in SA? Um, does Sepplesfield make a drier style? No, nah, Sepplesfield don't. Uh, Bailey's do. They come under the Treasury umbrella, mm. and although they're Glen Rowan, I think the majority of the the wine comes get, from comes from Riverland or Barossa Valley. But it's right. just put under Bailey's because it's a fortified sort of house. Yeah. House, yeah. <laughs> I might be very wrong there, but mm. from what I know, the last couple of vintages have been um, have been dominated by South Australian fruit. Mm. How did you find the uh, the the Portugal or the Douro experience? Where did you work at a particular house? Yeah, so I worked for I, – the primary location I worked for was Quinta de Roeda, which mm-hmm. is a Croft house. Sure. And Croft is under the business of the Floodgate Partnership and who owns Fonseca, mm-hmm. Taylor's and Croft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I had $4 million, I would go over to Portugal and buy a Quinta in the Douro Valley and just make port for the rest of my days. Yeah. It is a stunning, stunning location. What, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have, to have visited, you know, Porto and Nadura as well. I'm interested to find out what, what you find fascinating about, about, you know, their, you know, the, the Quintas and Dura Valley and, and the port production. The varieties, uh, for one, they are allowed to use up to 80 different varieties. Yeah. It's just such a, uh, a viticulturally diverse area. Yeah. But they concentrate more so on 10 varieties. Mm-hmm. But then there's a lot of people who still um, use a heap of different things in the mix. The other cool thing is the old vineyards, they're all interplanted. So you don't have a monoculture of a variety in one vineyard. You yeah. have in the – well, more so now you do in some of the newer vineyards. But the older vineyards, you have – Are they vineyards that are more likely to be used for table wine rather than for port production? Well, no, it depends. It depends on the producer. Right, okay. It also depends on the vineyard site because the vineyards over there are graded. Mm. And so the better vineyards are, are designated for port. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's still the case, but I don't know if some of them are going to table wine. Mm-hmm. But uh, – the better vineyards, especially the really old vinyavelas, the old vines, they you'll have one vine of Tarriga and then the next one you'll have a Tinta Amarella and then you'll have a Suzao and, and then you'll have something that you can't even identify because mm. it's so old. Mm. Um, there's only, say, three people in Portugal who can identify them. Uh, and that's exciting. The other thing is also the terroir there, uh, the landscape is quite barren. It's a very dry area and you go from this river that's about – three times the size of the Murray River, mm. uh, and that's about 100 metres above sea level, and the top of the peaks are close to a kilometre above sea level. Yeah. It's a really steep, very steep, dry area, and it's aesthetically stunning. But there's no mechanisation. They've got all these vineyards that have been terraced into the side of the hills, almost stepped into the side of the hills, mm. and they produce these wonderful wines of density and concentration and longevity. Mm. 
like just as far as you know the how how the the valley actually looks uh it kind of struck me how similar i felt to um the mosul valley um of course a lot hotter yeah of course <laughs> and i was there in summer and whew, it got pretty hot um the, the thing that really sticks with me about um the, the you know northern portuguese wine production is the lagars uh, and and the way that you know, these beautiful, um, often granite, kind of stone carved, um, kind of fermentation vats, and you know, and like how they, like they have a, a team of people go in and, and actually foot stomp, you know, and to macerate the wines, and you know, if they're doing it traditionally, they have to do it in complete silence, and it, you know, it's pretty pretty incredible um, kind of tradition that they have in Portugal, and you know, obviously that plays into the port production as well. Um, so, so you took away a lot from that experience? Uh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, in particular, how you're talking about the Lagars, that technique uh, of foot stomping and, and the macerating of that in, in that way is the way I make my ports. Right. Uh, so I want that high concentration, that high extraction, but yet a gentle extraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do it in silence. I generally have quite a fast hip um fun dance song in the background going or some dubstep or whatever but i (laughs) just to make it a bit more fun and generally have it with a beer in my hand somewhere or with some friends but uh that is how i make my uh vintage port style of port of course stalk inclusion in port production is something that i use as well which Mm -hmm. isn't common in australia but Mm -hmm. over there it's it's very common Mm -hmm. in particular in their vintage port styles Mm -hmm. um and then i also one of the ones I make, which is about to be released, is my white port, and that's a style that is uncommon here, but very common in Portugal, and mm. it's just a delicious drink. And so I picked up a few techniques mm. uh, in in how to make that style as well. I remember when I came back after trying white ports over there, I was talking to all the importers, saying, "Hey, you know, you get some white port, and now we don't bring the white port in." It's like, why not? It's yum. Yeah, it's delicious, especially the aged ones as well. And yeah, I I've made it because i like to drink it and uh, i i think it could do really well as a as one an aperitif in summer in australia but yeah. also as a mixer yeah yeah with cocktails mm, absolutely exactly. i mean they do that in porto and probably i'm guessing in uh, in Lisboa as well mm. um so when did you kind of conceive of the idea of simao and co so that came about in 2013 uh i'd been working at home for a few uh, for the farm for a few years mm-hmm. and I hated it. Mm-hmm. I was miserable and I was losing inspiration and just not growing professionally. Mm-hmm. And I bit the bullet and I resigned. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna, um, I generally sugarcoat things uh, when it comes to this a question like that, but uh, I think family business is a great oxymoron and mm-hmm. um I made the decision to leave because I was unhappy. Mm. And so I did. So I had this meager inheritance from dad that I liquidated uh, and I went and bought my barrels. I bought some tanks. I'd already organized who my growers were going to be and picked what I wanted to make Mm. and set about to do it on my my own Mm. and do it my way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not to pigeonhole myself for just Rutherglen. It was to try and emphasize the greater northeast region because Mm -hmm. I think it's a stunning part of Victoria, and mm. if not Australia, but also a vinously wonderful part of Australia as well. There's so much you can do there, which is what Samoa is about. So, what encompasses um, the, the great um, 
Go to Northeast Victoria. Northeast Victoria includes five regions. Mm-hmm. Glen Rowan mm-hmm. and Rutherglen, which would be the oldest, yep. and more well-known ones. Yep. Then you've got Beechworth, which is very cool. Yeah. Uh, when I say cool, I mean popular. Mm. Uh, a lot of exciting it, stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Uh, but I personally don't think it's a cool climate, but it does get bandied around that it is. Only parts of the very higher parts of uh, Beechworth are cool. And my friend Tessa and Jeremy are planting a vineyard up in that cooler part, which is really cool. If you'd like to hear more about that, please do listen to uh, the episode of the Vincast with Tessa. Uh, and then you've got the Alpine Valleys. Yep. And then you've got the King Valley as well. Right, okay. Um, so that's a pretty big kind of area. I mean, the King Valley is very large. Alpine Valleys incorporates, you know, a number of different valleys. Beechworth. I would say is probably the smallest. Beechworth is actually the smallest there. region in Victoria, right? Yeah, uh, by area, and mm. Rutherglen is not far behind. Glen Rowan is small by idea of where the vineyards are, yeah. but by area, it's actually bigger than you think. Yeah. So between Glen Rowan and Rutherglen, and you know the Alpine Valleys, we're talking you know warm to cool climate. So they, I, I imagine that the opportunities viticulturally are. Pretty, pretty diverse. So you, so you probably have a lot of area to play with, lots of different grape varieties as well. Um, and, and you said that, you know, from, you know, right back to your experience at Gapstead, you kind of learned, you know, about that area and, and got some re- relationships with growers. Um, did you find it um, exciting to kind of, you know, bring this kind of concept into the world? Of course. I, I think it's a concept that uh, a couple of people are using, as in multi-regional Chardonnay or multi-regional Shiraz. Yeah. Um, but then for me, I'm, I'm I'm sitting there going, how can I do this well? Um, what wines do I like to drink? What wines do I like to make? What wines do I think are well suited to the area? Yeah. For example, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I don't think it's suited to Rutherglen. I think there's a very small amount planted in Rutherglen, but I don't want to make it from Rutherglen. Mm-hmm. Yet I know of three very good vineyards, one whom I'm friends with, that makes exceptional, that grows exceptional sablon fruit. So that's, I went out and sourced it from a particular grower. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of vineyards in Australia in general, people have set out to plant what was popular at the time, as in they've, they've thrown in Shiraz and Cabernet. They're making, they making economic decisions. Exactly. And rather, Chardonnay rather and Riesling. Cultural decisions. Yeah. Whereas you think about where all those things are grown in relation to, Say, let's say France. Yeah, they're all in different parts of France, so yeah. it's really difficult to comprehend that they came all came out of one vineyard. Yeah. So, the idea of Samao is actually going to the right area and emphasising that this area produces this variety really well. Mm-hmm. And did you um, select particular varieties that you wanted to work with, or was it more about I just want really good fruit to make really good wine? It was both. So I think Shiraz is a very versatile variety for Rutherglen, Beechworth, and. Glen Rowan, mm-hmm. they all produce their own personalities from those regions. Yeah. Yet I don't think, I don't think the King Valley does Shiraz as well as what I would like to see it do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a bit like the Alpine Valleys, there might be sites that I haven't seen, uh, but I personally would like to prefer to make wine from those first three regions. Uh, but then Tempranillo, I think Tempranillo is fantastic from the Alpine Valley. I think mm-hmm. it's making beautiful fruit from up that way. Mm-hmm. And same with Nebbiolo as well. Uh, but then also I tried to concentrate on the varieties that I have experience with and that I have, uh, a, a, how do you say, a palate experience with. Say I dr- I've drunk a lot of Nebbiolo and 
uh, researched it a fair bit. I've mm. drunk a lot of Tempranillo, Spanish and Portuguese Tempranillo. Mm. And the idea of my Tempranillo is that one day it will become a blend of Temp, Tariga, Suzao. It'll become a more of a Duro blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, to, that is to say that this is what is done well up in this area. Yeah. Um, was was there kind of a um, a particular guiding principle that you had as far as the way that you wanted to make the wines? Mm, I think just a headstrong attitude. Yeah, <laughs> um, I wanted to. There there was with the Shiraz in particular. So I get sick and tired of people pigeonholing Rutherglen and Glen Rowan in particular with high alcohol, full noise, big full bodied wines. Now. Mm. There is that style. I'm totally cool with that. I've got friends who make that style very well. But it's not the style that I want to make because some of the best wines I've had in my winemaking career have actually come from Rutherglen and Glen Rowan, and that's not patriotism and bias. That's actually just honesty. Mm. One of the greatest wines I ever had was a 1970 Bailey's Hermitage. Mm. I drank it when it was 41 years old, and it was brilliant. Mm. And I just thought this is why the area was so well-known for long-lived reds. And the wine wasn't big. It was still fresh and it had great structure. And I thought these were – this style was common back then through Rutherglen and um, Glen Rowan. I was, I've drunk some brilliant Morris Shiraz and some great stuff that Grandpa made in the 70s. And I thought oh, I just want to go back a step and make great, elegant, structured, fine wines. Yeah. And also it's inspired by a lot of the, the French Shiraz that I've drunk as well. Sure. So there's a – I use a lot of stalk in my Shiraz. Now, that is not a trend-following um, decision. That is actually a, a technical decision because of the characters that the, the stalk can give. Yeah. Uh, same with long macerations as well. Yeah. And the wine that um, I was introduced to your to your project with um, was the Uni Blanc. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was something that I wanted to talk to you about because, again, I'm, I'm still – I want to hear from you – why you chose to call it Uni Blanc because I th- I think of that variety as far as for wine production as Trebbiano, which is of course because anyone who knows me knows that I'm obsessed with Italian wine and Italian grape varieties, um, whereas Uni Blanc is um, what they call it in France typically, particularly in terms of the production of brandy in, uh, in cognac and Armagnac, that kind of thing. So again, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you um, why you chose to call it Uni Blanc. That was a decision that I deliberated over. Mm. I asked a lot of people in the trade, a lot of friends, a lot of wine, friend winemakers, um, about what way I should swing. Some people said Trebbiano, definitely, um, and then some people said, no, no, go Uni Blanc. I always decided, in my heart, I was always going to call it Uni Blanc, but then the form of the word Uni Blanc, so U-G-N-I, mm. Agni, mm. if you're going to be an Australian phonetic pronounce, pronunciation, is is quite bold and it's offensive looking almost. But I also find it quite intriguing. And personally as well, I find although I, I do like some Trebs from Italy and I have seen some good examples in Australia, I think the connotation towards that name in Australia is towards bulk bulk production, cask wine, and just blend fillers mm. uh, for one, the Riverland, and also the Riverina. And I thought, you know what? If I have it as Trebbiano, people will probably look at it sideways and probably even pass over it. Whereas mm. if I have it as Uni Blanc, 
it will make people raise an eyebrow and might make them look at it twice. And there's no associations with bulk production. No, but if you ex- they ask what's a Nuni Blanc and mm. you explain to them what it is and then you say it's also called Trebbiano in Italy, mm. they go, ah, okay, and that there's an interest point about it. Whereas if you say Trebbiano, they'll go, oh, that's they use that like for you know very cheap wines and even in Italy, I mean Trebbiano, I think is the most planted what. Well, Tribbiano slash Uni Blanc is the most planted variety in Europe, mm-hmm. mostly for brand production. But, you know, certainly, you know, it is, as you say, a fantastic blending option in Italy with other varieties because you can get good volume and, you know, it's, it's nice and fresh, that kind of thing. Um, so I think probably the Uni Blanc was the right way to go. <laughs> um, when you, when you, when you explain it that way. I like Trebbiano though. <laughs> I also did it because I've got Sauvignon Blanc and then I've got Uni Blanc. So my okay. white portfolio is like my Blancs. Right. Okay, cool. Um, and so you have um, also been doing a bit of tinkering with um, some more fortified wines for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, then some of them aren't quite ready yet, but that's something that you're excited to be to be working on as well. Of course. Uh, you can't be a Rutherglen lad without having an appreciation or love for fortifieds. Yeah. And I'm unashamedly uh, proud of my heritage and, and the Rutherglen region. But it's also, uh, I also find it's there's a next level of understanding and uh, complexity in being a fortified winemaker. Yeah. Um, I At the moment, I just make some port styles. So I make my white port, ruby port, uh, and my vintage port. But I this year, I just started making musket. Now, I'm very fortunate to be able to do that because musket fruit is very difficult to come past in Rutherglen. It's very in demand. Mm. And I was lucky to get myself a a ton and a half to be able to make some. And you said some aren't ready for release yet. And that is true because these things take time. Mm. Uh, These things, uh, the musket in particular will take a a few years in barrel and and whatnot to mature and have some other wines blended into it. Mm -hmm. But then the port's, I've been doing them for this is my third vintage independently, yeah, and I've got some that are just about to come on on release. Excellent. And are you kind of excited the prospect of uh, a younger generation of wine consumers being introduced to fortified wines and possibly not having the connotations that they may have had, say, in the nineties that they're very daggy and sweet and and very simple. That's also half the fun of what I'm doing. That was the challenge right from the outset yeah and i was aware of that and people did say to me this is a very difficult thing you're doing you're trying to go out to a market that doesn't want to drink these styles and doesn't understand any of these styles and i've just said well bugger it i'm going to make them understand and i find i i like teaching people uh it's just in my instinct i like watching people drink say my vintage port Mm -hmm. and go oh i don't like port and then them being moved out of their comfort zone, having a sip, and then going, oh, wow, this is actually dry, yeah. drier. Yeah. And I like watching people's reaction. I like watching people be uh, be taught that their stereotype that they've got of the decanter on grandma's buffet at home mm. uh, filled with sherry or port uh, isn't, isn't what uh, a lot of the styles on the market today are like. Mm. One well, no, like the sherry market, they've worked very, very, very hard to to show people what real sherry is, so they don't think, oh, cream sherry. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, well, look, it, it sounds really exciting, and I personally am really interested to sort of try more of the the, the Simao and Co wines. Um, for people who might want to find out more about, you know, where they can actually buy the wines uh, or, or drink the wines in uh, in some of the bars and restaurants, um, what's the best way for them to find out more and and maybe also follow you on so- social media that kind of thing? So the website, the Simao and Co website, uh, has a relatively frequently updated list of who is selling and serving the Samal wines. Yep. Uh, there's a lot in Melbourne. There's a few in Sydney and you can find it in Canberra as well. Uh, and there's also my phone number that if you're in Rutherglen or the Northeast, you can generally give me a ring and uh, catch up, say hi. Uh, the other thing is also Instagram. I use Instagram a lot. I find it a really fun platform yeah. to give people an insight, like a window into the Samal and co world, yeah. which is a combination of, just me making the wine, me blending the wine, and also me, my me, sorry, my group of friends in in Beechworth and Rutherglen and and King Valley, uh, and who we are and what we're doing, and uh, giving people another reason to maybe venture up the highway and come and visit us all and try the wines from up the Northeast Valleys. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for for being on the podcast. It's um, a pleasure, and um, I look forward to hopefully coming to visit myself. <laughs> More than welcome to come up. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And of course, thank you to Simon for being on the show. Uh, you can follow me on social media on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And the podcast is also on Twitter at the Vincast. Facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino is where you'll find my Facebook page. So hit that like button uh, and you can see uh, things as I, as I share them on there. Uh, and I would love for you to come and visit my YouTube channel which is Intrepid Wino, one word, because uh, I do lots of videos, including Let's Tastes, uh, where I open bottles of wine from Australia, including one of Simon's wines uh, was the Uni Blanc. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, uh, that's a fantastic way to make sure you're getting the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. So if you go to iTunes, Player FM or Stitcher or any other uh, number of different podcast hosting uh, platforms, uh, I would love for you to leave me a five star rating and a review to provide some feedback to potential listeners Uh, of course all the information is available on intrepidwino.com website uh, as well as lots of different writings i've done in the past Uh, i'd love to hear from you so please do get in touch but uh, until next time bye